welcome, movie fans. Thank you for joining us for episode 74 of Reading Between the Reels. If you're a new listener, we're so glad you found us. And if you've been enjoying the show, please tell someone about us. Send a tweet, post to Facebook, write a review in your favorite podcast catcher, or just recommend the show to a friend. I'm Craig Dickinson, and today on the show, I'll be sharing the fourth and last in our series of Star Wars conversations that my English classes participated in with special guests. And today we have for you Brian Young of Full of Sith and Ross Holliban from Tracks and the Album Cockpit Podcast. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello? Uh, Hello. My question is, do you believe Anakin was redeemed by the end of the first three movies? Um, you mean by the original trilogy? Yeah, or not, I mean, throughout... I mean, from the original, like the last movie in the original trilogy to the sixth movie. I think I he was redeemed think, that time. I think um, redemption is a really personal thing. Personally, he was redeemed in Luke's eyes. He was redeemed. But the thing about it is that like redemption's not necessarily forgiveness. So whether he earns forgiveness with anybody else is that's between them and, and whatever they believe or want to do. But Anakin made a truly selfless choice to try to undo the evil that he'd done through his life. And so personally, yeah, he was, he was redeemed in that way. Um, and Luke, Luke bought that. I think the lesson of Star Wars is that it's so important to remember that no matter how far down that path of darkness you go, it's not too late to come back and make the right decision. Thank you. How did Luke know or how did Vader know that Luke was his kid? So uh, in the movies, they don't really explain it at all in the comic books. uh basically it's a matter of inferring information in the movies that naturally if there's a year between or three years between uh, a new hope and empire vader would have made some inquiries to find out who it was that blew up his death star in the comics they explore that that idea and he goes out and finds uh he hires boba fett and black chrysanthemum who maybe you've seen in the mandalorian to track down that information and find out where the kid came from. And then Vader starts piecing together his lineage. Uh, Dr. Afra ends up going and dealing with the undertaker uh, on Naboo to find out whether or not the kids had been uh, still, uh, if the kids had died with Padme as well. And he sort of pieced these, these things together before his confrontation with Luke and empire strikes back. Um yeah, I mean, he knew she was pregnant and they told the galaxy she still was when she died. But when a kid named Luke Skywalker destroys your Death Star, you're going to you're going to ask around and find out what's going on with that. OK, thank you. Um, how did Anakin know how to become a force ghost? So I think this is really interesting. I think um there's there's some hints and I don't think they ever say it outright in Star Wars. But if you if you notice when Anakin starts turning to the dark side in Attack of the Clones, you can hear Qui-Gon sort of voicing like a like a screeching no when when Anakin kills the uh, the Tusken Raiders. Right. And I think Qui-Gon's presence is something that is. Um, around and that Qui-Gon's always kind of got half an eye on Anakin uh, in that afterlife. 
But I think Vader starts really questioning what that is and why that happens when he strikes down Obi-Wan Kenobi and his body vanishes, which is not anything Vader's ever encountered before. Right. When he watched Qui-Gon die, uh, Qui-Gon, you know, they gave him a a funeral uh, where where they burned his body and he'd never encountered that becoming one with the force thing. And so I think as his journey continued, um, through the classic trilogy and having Qui-Gon sort of screaming at him in a way that maybe he couldn't hear him consciously, but maybe subconsciously he could, that, that he, he discovers that pathway. And if you listen to George Lucas talk about it, he talks about how really that pathway to immortal life uh, or becoming one with the force and being able to maintain your consciousness is by making that, that, final sacrifice and sacrificing yourself for something greater than everyone else. And that's definitely what he did by risking his life to save Luke's. Thank you. Why do you think Obi-Wan kept lying to Luke about his dad? You know, do you ever have that situation where your parents are like, I'm not going to tell you now because either the conversation is going to be too long and exhausting, or I don't think it's age appropriate for you or whatever. And I think part of it was that like that Obi-Wan was afraid that if he told him too much about his father or his turn to the dark side, that Luke might take that turn too. Um, And I mean, Obi-Wan levels with him when he needs to learn the truth after Vader tells him. But if you found out that your parent was like, your real parent was like the worst person in the world. Um, You know, would you want to, would you want somebody, I mean, you probably would want somebody to tell you that, but um, the people who care about you don't want to put that, that burden on you. Right. So I think Obi-Wan lied to, to keep Luke safe for one to keep him comforted and not have him worry about that potential inside of him. And because he loved him and didn't want to hurt him with that information. Okay. Thank you. Why was Jar Jar important? Did he put you up to this? Did, did, (laughs) why is Jar Jar important? Um, I'm wearing my Jar Jar shirts today. Um, Jar Jar is immensely important for a lot of reasons. Um, One of my favorite He's one of my favorite characters. Um, Jar Jar, how deep do you want to go into this? Because I can do this at like the the deep level or like the surface level. Deep. Okay. Okay. Um, Without Jar Jar Binks, you don't get the Empire defeated by the Ewoks at the end of Return of the Jedi, right? Mm -hmm. There's there's a very clear through line there. Um, Let's start with the sort of mythological underpinnings of Jar Jar Binks in Phantom Menace, where you have no one wanting to be around him or, or, you know, just be with him. He's an outcast. Um, He's this bullied kid. I don't know. I identified a lot with Jar Jar because, you know, when I was in high school, nobody wanted me around the same way, but Qui-Gon is a Jedi and really needs to be respectful of all life. And, sees something in Jar Jar, an inherent worth that no one else does, because he's really listening to the will of the force and what 
um, how we're supposed to act and treat people. We need to treat everyone with an inherent dignity, no matter how annoying we might think they are. So Qui-Gon drags Jar Jar along, even though he doesn't necessarily have any value or add anything to that, to, to his situation until he's able to unite the Naboo and the Gungans together by the end of the movie. So you can see that Jar Jar is important, even in the context of just Phantom Menace, where he is, uh, you know, bringing the Naboo to the Gungans in, and they have had a frosty relationship through the entire you know, their recent history in general, they're able to beat back the Trade Federation. Fast forward to Attack of the Clones, where you have like Palpatine going like, how did my plan not work? Oh, it's because of this guy, this useful idiot who thought he was doing the right thing and helping people, but I can use him too. And so that's how Palpatine manipulates Jar Jar into creating the clone army. So Jar Jar is important in that regard too. Now, fast forward to Revenge of the Sith, the Jedi all uh, are, are purged largely. Yoda goes into exile. And who's the one person that he is talking to in his exile on Dagobah uh, as he's trying to figure out where the Jedi went wrong all over those many years? It's Qui-Gon. And, and Qui-Gon is able to tell him, hey, this is what happened, right? There's a, a moment in... Um, I mean, you all know those classic fairy tale stories. It's sort of the inverse of Beauty and the Beast, right? At the beginning of Beauty and the Beast, he's sort of cursed because he can't be nice to the old crone and he doesn't realize that she's powerful and she can affect him in negative ways. Jar Jar's the other way too, right? Um, everyone treats him poorly, even though they don't realize the good things he can do for them. And when they finally do treat him with dignity, he does those good things for him. So Qui-Gon's explaining this to Yoda. So when Luke shows up on Dagobah, who is it that Yoda's acting like when he first, first meets Luke? He's acting like Jar Jar. He's obnoxious. He's useless. He's poking holes in what the Jedi might be. You know, he says, oh, wars not make one great. And he annoys Luke to the point where Luke blows up. And Yoda's like, I don't think I can train him because he hasn't figured this out, that he needs to be nice to everybody. This is the way the Jedi need to be. Obi-Wan convinces him otherwise. And Luke really does learn that lesson and take it to heart when they get to Endor. And Luke is faced with Han wanting to literally murder all of the Ewoks. When Han raises his blaster to the Ewoks after they've been captured, does anyone doubt that Han and Chewie could have torn all of those little furry murder bears like from limb to limb? Like, no, I think we could have. But Luke's the one who stays his hand and they pretend to get captured by all of them. And it's this gesture of saying like, no, we're going to play things their way. We're going to be nice to them. And we're not just going to do all of this. Um, that's what unites the Ewoks and the rebellion to fight against their common enemy with the empire. And that it, you can trace that directly um, beat for beat thematically all the way back to Jar Jar and Qui-Gon being nice to him, even though maybe some people think he should think that he shouldn't have been. And you'll see a lot of visual language um, that's repeated in the movies to kind of reinforce that. Um, there's a shot, if you remember in Phantom Menace, where Jar Jar is like uh, stealing meat off of the, you know, from the, the Chuba seller on Tatooine. And he's he's about to get in a fight and everybody's going to cream him. But a Skywalker comes in and says, no, 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 no. I'm going to put a stop to this fight. 
It's shot in exactly the same way in Return of the Jedi when Chewbacca sees that weird meat, you know, in uh, on Endor and he goes for it and they end up in the trap and then the Ewoks want to fight them or they want to fight the Ewoks and it's another Skywalker who stays his hand and uh, tying those those two ideas thematically, visually and, and situationally to remind you of those themes together, to, to remind you that, like, you just have to be kind to beings that you think might be lesser than you, whether you think they can do anything for you or not, because just killing them all or beating them all up is a bad thing. So Jar Jar is incredibly important. Uh, also because he's rad. And if you know anything about silent film history, he, uh, all of his like comedy routines come straight from silent films from Charlie Chaplin, from Buster Keaton, from Harold Lloyd. And so as a film nerd, I always really responded to the fact that George Lucas was able to smuggle in those great silent film movements and somebody better stop me. Cause I'll just keep doing this. Cause I really like Jar Jar. Does that answer your question well enough? Yeah, thank you. And you're sure no one put you up to that? Yeah. <laughs> I may have mentioned something about Jar Jar. Okay. Um, why does Yoda say that Luke only needs to confront Vader again to become a Jedi? So, um, really, like, the thing about being a Jedi is, like, confronting your greatest fear and confronting that shadowy version of yourself. And if Luke is able to confront Vader and still maintain his grasp of the light, then he will he will have passed that test and become a Jedi. But there are no Jedi masters around to actually, like, give him the test, right? Um so that's that's really what Yoda's talking about there, that if he faces Vader, who's this shadowy, dark reflection of him and still maintains his grip on the light side of the force, then he'll be good and he'll be able to be a Jedi. Thank you. Um, why are there different kyber crystals like colors? Uh, the colors. Um, well, there's there's a couple of reasons for that out of the universe. It's because. Um, there was only going to be blue lightsabers and red lightsabers, but when they started filming Return of the Jedi and they realized that the blue lightsaber against the blue sky over Jabba's skiff wasn't going to show up, George Lucas was like, okay, maybe they can be green too. And then when they were making Attack of the Clones, Sam Jackson was like, who do I talk to about getting a purple lightsaber? And George Lucas was like, well, they only come in three colors. It's red and blue and green. And the bad guys have red and the good guys have blue and green. And Sam Jackson was like, yeah, but I really want purple. And George Lucas made that happen. And then there's like different shades that came about uh, because of that. In the universe, though, um, there's a lot of thought about how um, kyber crystals are really attuned to the uh, the users of the kyber crystals. And so you sort of find one that matches you and uh, red and, and or blue and green are sort of the kyber crystals that are most common. You can have some that are purple, but they're very rare. Um, and when a dark side user needs to, to get a kyber crystal, they can't just go somewhere because they can't become 
attuned to the force the way a force like a, a light side user can so they actually have to steal kyber crystals and what that ha- what what happens is is they they will kill another force user take their lightsaber and that crystal doesn't want to be used by them and so they have to do what they call is bleeding the the crystal and that's what turns it red You'll notice in Mandalorian or in Rebels, Ahsoka Tano has white lightsabers, and that's because she kind of had to do the opposite thing. Um, she discarded her lightsabers uh, to try to kind of give everybody the impression she might have been dead. And she tries to lead a, a life of pacifism and an inquisitor comes after her and uh, she has to use the force to take the Inquisitor's lightsaber and defeat him. Um, and she takes the crystals back and then she heals them white from that red state uh, to use them as as white lightsabers. Um, so the, the color of the crystals is a little arbitrary, but there's some story reasons about why they can go from like blues and 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 greens and purples and yellows to red and then how to get them back to white from there okay thank you how come jedis can't use emotion specifically rage in battle even though it may help them so there's there's well for one like um Yoda says pretty specifically that it's not better or more powerful. It's only quicker and easier and more seductive. And Yoda tells Luke that once you start down that path forever, it's going to dominate your destiny. So if you start using, if you give into your rage once, you're going to give into your rage again, and you're going to give into your rage again. And because it's easier, you're not going to master the, the things that you need to do in order to um, be more holistic and more, more measured and balanced about how you use the force. So you're going to abuse it more and more and more. Um, Rage is not a useful um, emotion to have generally and pushing that on other people is bad. And it's interesting. George Lucas talks about the philosophy of balance in the force and balance in the force doesn't mean an equal number of light side users and dark side users. It means that the, the force is balanced between people who um, it's, it's balanced where people aren't manipulating it in evil or bad ways or dark ways. And the people on the light side are using it for good. And you can't really do things for good in its totality. If you're, giving into rage because that's doing bad to you being filled with rage doesn't feel good right it doesn't feel good on you and so it's it causes a damage and makes things uh out of balance right so that's why the jedi aren't uh encouraged to do that thank you would you consider uh anakin uh being a sympathetic character after joining the dark side yeah, no, I mean, Anakin has always been really sympathetic to me. Um, I mean, I'll make no secret, you know, my my oldest kid, his name is Anakin. So I always found Anakin to be sympathetic. Um, here's the thing about Anakin, though, is that like when he turns into Darth Vader and he starts killing people like there's a sympathy in how he was manipulated. 
there's a sympathy in how he thought he was he was convinced he was doing the right thing, even though it was absolutely the wrong thing. And there's a sympathy in the fact that he took away the life that he wanted and the ability to spend his life with the people he loved and the people who loved him, whether that was Padme or Luke or Leia because of that rage and that anger that he felt. And there's a sympathy that he um, realizes all of this on his deathbed when he finally rescues Luke. Does that mean that the stuff he did was okay? Absolutely not. But there is definitely some sympathy there, especially in that he was manipulated into thinking that was the right thing. Okay, Thank you. Do you think there's a moment when Anakin can no longer go back and is destined to the dark side? So I I don't, I mean, like if he would have let Luke die, that probably would have been like, if he would have let Palpatine kill Luke, that probably would have been the point where if that didn't bring him back, nothing else would or could. Um, But if you look, if you, if you study storytelling, that that George Lucas was looking at before this stuff. Um, Anakin's story really. Oh, wow. Siri tried to get in on this. George Lucas was kind of patterning um, Anakin's story and that redemption at the end of his life after um, Faust. And you'll hear about people making Faustian bargains and things. And, and Faust uh, Faust was a character in literature uh, that that made a deal with the devil and sort of uh, the deal was that, you know, the devil would get his soul and whatnot. And he does all these horrible things, but he recants on his deathbed. And in um, certain Christian mythologies, that idea is that, like, as long as you repent for your sins, you're going to be able to go to heaven. And, the you know, Satan is not going to have any sway over you, whatever. Right. And George Lucas was taking all of these comparative religions and mythologies and sort of emulating them into Star Wars. And. Anakin is that that embodiment of that that particular myth that sort of cuts across a number of different religions and cultures where he makes a deal with the devil who's Palpatine at this point and then comes back at the end and the devil ends up losing that situation. And that just goes back thousands of years of human history and storytelling. And that's why I think Anakin was always going to come back is the story is just designed to do that. And if you get into comparative mythology and the work of Joseph Campbell that George Lucas was studying when he was writing Star Wars, all these stories are intended to do is give us modern mythology to help us um, defeat these worse impulses in ourselves and to give us life lessons that we can use as usefully as Greek mythology or Sunday school or whatever. Uh, and, And so... I feel like I answered your question, but I think I went like down. I took a left turn at Albuquerque somewhere. Okay. Thank you. Hello. Uh, in the prequels, why couldn't the, the Jedi sense that uh, the chancellor was Palpatine? I mean, Darcidius. That is one of the powers of the Sith is being able to cloud visions of people. So, some of the books you get into this a little bit more, but Sidious was so powerful that he was really able to confuse everyone by 
mixing messages and making sure that no one could get a lock on exactly what he was doing. He's so duplicitous and conniving as an individual, as an evil individual, that he knew how to work that around people to make people second guess themselves and not see what was directly under their nose. Hello. Um, Hi there. Do you believe that Anakin was the chosen one or do you think it was Luke? I'm going to stay with Anakin. Um, and just from that level, although if you're looking at the question the whole way around now, you could almost consider it being Ray as well. So there are multiple ways to look at it. I'm going to stick with the initial um, because it forced Palpatine to do something different because it got his own Sith apprentice to turn on him. So I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay with Anakin getting rid of Palpatine as Darth Vader. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I have one big question. What do you feel? What would happen if Qui Gon never died? Oh, I think it all gets different then. It is, you know what? Building on the previous question, it still unfolds that way of Vader slash Anakin turning to make something happen. But I think we get there and there is, uh, there's an audio drama and a book that talks about the visions that Qui-Gon had more. And I think that Qui-Gon would have helped everyone kind of guide there a little bit differently because he was willing to push against the Jedi Council a little bit more. So that's where, you know, one of the themes that I think is very important that doesn't always get talked about in Star Wars is being a critical thinker and learn things and learn what people are teaching you but don't be afraid to question things sometimes. Know why this is why this is happening, but you should be able to have questions. This is probably the worst thing that Mr. Dickinson wants me to say, but sometimes rules are there to break them, but you have to understand the rules and why they're in place first. So I hope that answers. That is a long, arduous yeah. way of saying it, but Bygone's the man. I, I wish he was still there and, and driving through everything. Thanks for answering that question. Thank you. Hi. During the Phantom Menace, Qui-Gon likes to talk about letting the Force guide them uh, to their fate. Yet at the same time, he spends a lot of time manipulating the Force to get what he wants. Mm-hmm. Nice that. Okay. Uh, sometimes people have beliefs and they feel so strongly in them that they're willing to aid them a little bit to get what they want. And that is, that is a human trait, but that's also sometimes a human fallacy of our, our fault where it's just like, oh, you know what? I, I'm not just going to let things happen naturally. I want to make sure it's going in this direction or at least give it a little bit of a nudge. So that's a little bit of human nature. And I think that's George Lucas playing with that idea and saying, okay, 
this person's a Jedi, but there's still humanity about them. You know, they're, they're guided by these points. But we all need to remember at the end of the day, we have to hold ourselves accountable for the decisions and the actions that we make. And if you're sometimes people will justify, oh, I'm doing the right thing. So it's okay if I cheat a little bit here. So that's where you had that moral dilemma. And that's something that I think we're going to learn a lot about from the High Republic. And then the newer movie that's coming out that's even before the High Republic about the Jedi. So I am just over the moon about the idea of that happening. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what is the significance of Jedi Master Pluku? He was a very powerful and very liked member of the Jedi. I think he's he's most important to me because he's one of Dave Filoni's favorite Jedi. So the fact that that's the case and he's inspired someone who has reinvigorated some of the storytelling, I think is awesome. Um, but he he's powerful. He's smart. Um, we see him save Ahsoka in the Clone Wars. We all, all of these important elements and areas that he factored in. I, I, I wish he had more of a, I will call it a, a passing worthy of his accomplishments because it was kind of a quick how it happened after order 66. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, do you think Qui-Gon and um, Obi-Wan would have found a way to train Anakin if the Jedi Council would have said no? I, I love the idea that they would. And I would be so interested in figuring out the process that Qui-Gon would have had to take to convince Obi-Wan to do that because I think Obi-Wan would have questioned it the whole time. But I also think he cared so much about Bygone and believed in him that there was a chance that he can get nudged. Like, think about anything that any of you are doing at times and you, you have a friend kind of peer pressuring you into something where you're like, eh, here's the rule, uh, but maybe it's not going to hurt anything and you have to start judging how's this going to work. Um, so I think that is a brilliant question and super fun to, to think about how that would have played out. Hi. Um, okay. So I'm curious about, um, why, why do you think that, um, Obi-Wan disappeared when he turned into a force ghost? Because we see that Anakin, Yoda, and, um, um, Qui-Gon. Yes. Yes. They, they yeah, don't. Yeah. They don't disappear. So why do you think that Obi-Wan did? And is there another Jedi that disappeared when they died? I don't know that someone, and I think we're going to keep learning about that because that's some of what uh, they teased with the Kenobi series on Disney Plus was how hard Obi-Wan had to work to finally see Qui-Gon because Qui-Gon was the one that figured out how to do it. And then he started teaching everyone else. He taught Yoda how to do it. And I don't think Obi-Wan, when Vader took him down, 
I don't think Obi-Wan fully understood it yet, um, how to do it. So that's my interpretation of it. Um, I think you can get a lot of different vantage points for it. And it's something cool to leave up to your imagination. And that's a beautiful thing about Star Wars is there's so many things that we can all look at and say, okay, this is the general theme. This is what happened. There's, there's different ways of looking at it. And that's why they have the series of books called From a Certain Point of View as well, because everyone can look at things differently. If every one of you in this shot right now that I see watched a sports play, watched a moment of a film, of a TV show, or had to look at music lyrics and break them down, it might mean something different to you, or each of you may explain it a little bit different. And that's a beautiful thing is to be able to communicate with one another so we all get to share those messages messages together. All right, cool, thank you. Thank you so much. In your opinion, how many people in the Phantom Menace knew that Padme was the queen and her bodyguard was a decoy? I want to say, I want to say there might have been two or three, and they were all in the Naboo Royal Guard. And they kept that very tight lipped. Um, there are books by E.K. Johnston that talk about it a little bit more. So that is, I don't know them as well. I've done a quick read of the first one and it was kind of fascinating the things that they had to do to become her body double. And they didn't, they always tried to mix it up, mixing messages to confuse everyone. So no leaks could ever happen. Thank you. Thank you. Why do you think Darth Vader betrayed Darth Sidious? Family. Like that, that's what it ended up being. It was, he saw what his legacy was going to be. If he let his son die there, his legacy could only go down that path. He, he had a moment of clarity and a moment of vision and, you know, got a huge cheer in the audience when I, so I was nine and a half years or eight and a half years old when I saw Return of the Jedi in the theater. Um, and I know I was a happy little kid at that point, seeing him make that turn and change things. But I, that that's where I would put it. All right. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, why was the first movie called The Phantom Menace? So this one's interesting because I think more often than not, they talk about Palpatine and how he's hiding as the Sith amongst people. So that's bigger for the large picture of things, but also no one had met Darth Maul yet. So he's, he's a little bit of a fan of Menace there as well. So you can look at the smaller scope of it with Darth Maul, but then the much larger scope is Palpatine and the Sith and how they've been able to operate so quietly behind the scenes embedding themselves in so many different places all right thank you thank you why do you think the jedi council was so hesitant to admit anakin on their council and the fact that they didn't admit him as a jedi master so i think it is very much tied to 
how Congress looks at the internet right now, where they don't fully understand it and they're afraid of it in a lot of ways. And that's why laws can't keep up with, with what's happening with the internet. The Jedi Council, there was a lot going on that they didn't understand and didn't know. So they were afraid to have someone younger come in and possibly know more. So I, I think it was a big mistake on their part um, because it could have kept Anakin happier and more fulfilled. But I think you'll see this throughout life, like especially once you start working and things like that. Sometimes people in charge are hesitant to let someone else take over or to come in and alter the message that they've spent so much time putting in place. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. So my question Hello. is when Anakin was being tested like of his power with the force and the council said that he was too old to be trained, how come it wasn't like that for Luke? Yeah. That, well, I, I think it was desperation at that point. There were no Jedi, so they they had to take what they could get. Um, and that was part of I'm sure there was some level of prophecy that got factored in there as well. But it it really was you know, the whole thing earlier on critical thinking. And there are going to be times where everything's nice and in order, so you get to run it that way. But at this point, there were no Jedi, so they had to bank on someone being able to save them so that they can start it again. And we'll see what happens when the new Ray film comes out, um, however many years from now that it is, as she tries to start the Jedi Order again and start training Force users. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my question for you is how different do you think the chains of events would have been if um, Darth Vader had known that Leia was his daughter when he first captured her? Oh, that would have been insane. Because he, would have, he may have never met Luke because the, everything that he wanted to try to do with Luke and made, you know, going to Hoth, everything that Vader was doing was try to find, trying to find his son so that then he could turn them and turn on the emperor. So I think, and I think Leia would have been much stronger than Luke in doing that. So I'm very glad uh, Darth Vader did not know that was the case so that Leia got to be the coolest woman warrior ever um, who's out there. Great question. Thank you. Hello. Hey there. What are the implications of Leia saying that she could feel her and Luke were connected? And why did she not think more about it when she felt connected to a stranger? I think we've all probably been through that scenario. How many times have you watched something unfold? Anyone in the room there? Have you watched it unfold and afterwards been like, Oh, I knew that would happen. Or, you know, I expect when, when you're in the moment, sometimes it's hard to recognize what is right there for you. So it is, it's taking that moment and, you know, you, you get those hunches, you get those feelings through things you're doing of, you know, I, this cupcake is going to taste better than that one. How this can be in the, in the, multi-assorted candy box 
oh, this one's decorated better, so I'm going to like this one better, and this one isn't, but I'm going to choose that instead, and you you don't like the taste, and afterwards you're like, I knew not to take that one. Sometimes you go through that just through our decision processes, and I think that was an especially complicated one for Leia, but that once she understood what was going on, that it made absolute sense. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. You got time for one more? Yeah. Perfect. So Leia says that she could remember her mother and uh, she knew that she felt sad. Do you think that's like um, part of the force and that's how she knew? I absolutely agree with you. I think it had to be part of the force based off the storytelling or else the storytelling got away a little bit because when I most recently watched that, that that's one of the lines that like always distracts me. I was just like, Oh, did she, she couldn't have known because it was that early on. And then the funeral was right afterwards. So um, I'm right with you. Maybe they were trying to fix that a little bit in the grand scheme of things, but yeah, I agree that, if she had those visions and things, it had to, had to be forced visions. Thank you. Thank you. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com or use the SpeakPipe app on our website. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend and support us by writing a review on your favorite podcast catcher. 